This afternoon we're considering together the verses 145 to 152 of Psalm 119 and 153 to 160, the stanzas Kof and Resh. The main idea of the first of those two stanzas is, I think, found in the words, Save me and I will observe your testimonies, or I will keep your testimonies in verse 146. Save me, and I will keep your testimonies. The um, stanza, I think, has two parts to it as well. In the first half of the stanza, the first four verses, we find him crying out to the Lord. Notice the repetition of that word in the first three verses of the stanza. I cry out with my whole heart. I cry out to you. I rise before the dawning of the morning and cry out for help. It's the same word in all three instances. So he's crying for help in order that he may keep the Lord's testimonies. And in the uh, second part of the stanza, verses 149 to 152, he uh, repeats his cry, Hear my voice according to your loving kindness. And then I think in the rest of the stanzas, encourages himself uh, to believe that the Lord will indeed hear him as he has asked. So we're going to look at those two parts of this uh, stanza separately. First, looking at the details of the request that we find in the first half, and then looking at the self-encouragement in the second half of the stanza. Now what's moving the psalmist here in this stanza is clearly a desire to keep the commandments of the Lord. You have it expressed in both of the verses that begin the stanza, Hear me, O Lord, I will keep your statutes. And again in 146, save me and I will keep your testimonies. There is this strong desire then to keep the commandments of God. He uh, has fixed his longing on that in this stanza. The goal of his life has become to keep the statutes, the commandments, the testimonies of the Lord. And in order that he may do so, he cries to the Lord. He uh, recognizes that he's not able to do this by himself, and he needs the help of the Lord in order to accomplish it. And so he cries then to the Lord in um, verse 146, Save me, and I will keep your testimonies. He needs salvation. And, uh, of course, when we talk about that word salvation, we talk about it in its broadest uh, way. It includes the concept of salvation from sin and from death. It includes the idea of salvation from all the troubles and afflictions of life. And it includes the idea also of salvation from enemies. All of these things are encompassed in that word salvation. When he says, save me, he means save me from the sins and temptations which beset me on a daily basis. Uh, Save me from my own weaknesses and sins, as well as those temptations that come from outside. 
He means save me from all those circumstances of life which uh, become to me temptations and trials which tend to drive me away from you and away from the way of obedience to your commandments and save me from my enemies who are obstacles to my obedience to your commandments, who have made it their goal in life, in fact, to separate me from you and to make me walk in their ways rather than in your ways. He wants salvation then, but he wants this salvation in order that he may keep the commandments and testimonies of the Lord. He adds to this request in uh, the uh, next verse, 147, he cries, he says, for help. He needs the Lord's help. Now, the, we should notice about this request that he makes here then, this desire to keep the commandments of the Lord, that it's very urgent. Not only is the request repeated three times, as we've already noted, but he says in verse 145, I cry out with my whole heart. All his thoughts, all his desires are consumed with this great thought that he wants to keep the commandments of the Lord. And he's crying out to the Lord with his whole heart that the Lord will give to him the uh, ability to do what he wants to do. Every thought, every desire directed to that end. But this urgency also comes across in the next um, couple of verses, in verses 147 and 148. He says first in 147, I rise before the dawning of the morning and cry for help. Um, if you look at the King James here, you will see that the King James says, I prevented the dawning of the morning. And the King James is using that word prevent, not in its modern sense of stopping, of course, but in the old sense of coming before. And the New American Standard Version has anticipate. I anticipate the dawning of the morning. So the rise before the dawning of the morning is a reasonable translation of that. But the reason I call your attention to it is because he uses the very same word again in the next line, in the next verse. My eyes are awake. We have through the night watches, actually, my eyes prevent, the King James has, or my eyes anticipate the night watches. So he uses the same word twice in those two verses. That's the, the point that we uh, want to grasp here, I think. And what he's saying then is that, first of all, he's rising before dawn. He's getting up before the sun comes up in order to make this prayer, in order to call on the name of the Lord and ask for him to help him, to save him, so that he may keep his testimonies. And then he adds to this, not only do I rise before the dawn, but I also anticipate the night watches. And I think it's probably important there that he speaks of the night watches rather than a night watch. He probably means here that before each of the watches of the night, he's getting up and repeating his request to the Lord again. In other words, his request is morning and evening and even throughout the night. He continues to 
make his requests to the Lord. He adds in verse 148 that he anticipates the night watches that he may meditate on the Lord's word. This is the means by which he will come to the uh, keeping of the commandments of the Lord as he calls on the name of the Lord and as he meditates on the word of the Lord during the night watches. This is not here, then we have him repeating his prayer many times then, but this is not vain repetition, of course. This is godly urgency. It is a, there's a certain even desperation to his crying to the Lord here for salvation so that he may keep the Lord's commandments. One more thing that we should notice about these first four verses, and that is that in verse 147, he says, I hope in your word. That hope is what uh, nourishes his urgency and his steadfastness in his prayers. It is the anchor of his soul that holds within the veil. Spurgeon says of that verse, who would pray if he had no hope that God would hear him? Who would not pray when he has a good hope of a blessed issue to his entreaties? So he He's hoping in the word of God. He's hoping in what God has said. And based on that hope, he cries urgently for the Lord to give to him salvation so that he may keep the testimonies of the Lord. So let's turn then to the second part of the stanza, verses 149 to 152. And in verse 149, he repeats his Prayer, hear my voice according to your loving kindness. O Lord, revive me according to your justice. So he's repeating his request again. He doesn't say specifically that his desire here is to keep the commandments of the Lord, but it's certainly there in the background as we've seen already in the first half of the stanza. Hear my voice, he says. Listen to me. Notice that In verse 145, he cries out with his heart, and here he cries out with his voice. And he asks God to listen to him and to hear him according to his loving kindness. That is, he knows God to be a God of loving kindness, not a God of anger, not a God of bitterness, not a God of malice, but a God of loving kindness. And he asks God to deal with him according to that loving kindness which he always shows towards those who love his name. And in the second line of the verse, to revive him or to give him life according to his justice, or better, here, according to your judgments. The word is plural in the Hebrew. And it is a reference, again, to the commandments of God. And when he makes this appeal to the justice of God, to the judgments of God, he's saying, not only do you in those uh, judgments lay out before me the way that I should follow, but you also lay out before me the way that you will deal with me 
You will deal with me according to those judgments. This is what you have said in your judgments about not only the way of life I must walk, but the way that you will deal with me in that way of life. And I ask then, he's asking that the Lord will quicken him, will give him life, according to those judgments, according to the way that God has laid out in his commandments. The commandments cannot give life, of course, but the commandments show us the way of life, the way we must walk in order to know God and to walk with him. So, quicken me to walk according to the judgments that you have pronounced. But in the following verses, then, he encourages himself, I think, uh, to believe that the Lord will hear him. And he begins with the difficulty that is present to him, especially at at this moment. They draw near who follow after wickedness. We've spoken of the fact that salvation is salvation from enemies. He speaks here of those enemies, those men who follow after wickedness, who love wickedness, do not walk according to the commandments of God, walk according to their own imaginations and their own desires. He says, they hate me and they're drawing near to me. And they are coming to oppress me, to trouble me, and to try to drive me away or draw me away from your law. Notice the contrast, though, in the second part of that verse. They draw near, he says, who follow after wickedness. They are far from your law. In fact, you might even say that as they draw near to him and they're following after wickedness, they are going farther and farther from the law of God. They have chosen a way which does not uh, adhere to or even run parallel to the way of God's law, but they have chosen a way which is directly opposed to the law of God, which runs away from the law of God. And as they draw near to him, to the psalmist, they are drawing farther and farther away from the law of of God. They depart from that law in the very act, therefore, of drawing near to the psalmist. But notice again the contrast with the next verse. As they draw near, he says, you are near. And it's a very uh, striking difference there. They're drawing near, but you are near. And because you are near, they must overcome or circumvent you in order to do to me the harm that they want to do. You are there as my shield. You are there as my wall of defense. You are there as my rock and my fortress. You are there to defend me from their attacks. And there is no way that they can get to me unless you, they first get around you yourself. So he's encouraging himself and comforting himself with regard to these attacks of his enemies, those attacks which are aimed at keeping him from the law of God, drawing him away from the right path. And he says, you're there. Near me, 
at my side at all times to keep me and to help me and to save me from them. And all your commandments are truth is another element in this uh, self-encouragement. He means, of course, that the commandments of God don't change. What he relies on today, he may, may rely on tomorrow. Those commandments are not arbitrary commandments. They are commandments rooted in the very being of God. They are commandments which are true and unchangeable forever. And the psalmist looks at those commandments and he says, here, in these commandments, I find the way of life, the way I must walk. And I know that those commandments are not going to change. They are truth. They are always going to be the same. As long as I walk in those commandments, I walk in the way that is pleasing to God. He will not change towards me because his commandments don't change. And the same theme then continues into verse 152. Concerning your testimonies, I have known of old that you have founded them forever. Notice he first goes back in his own memory. I have known of old to the earliest days that he can recall. And he says, I've known from those earliest days that you have founded them forever. Your testimonies, therefore, are firm and sure. It's really a repetition of what he says in verse 1. They are firm and sure. Your testimonies are a safe way, a good way, an unchanging way for me to walk. Now, this way that he wants to walk, of course, is not a way separated from Christ himself. It is the righteousness of Christ that he seeks here, that righteousness of Christ as given to him in the work of salvation. And it is Christ himself who prays here first. I cry out with my whole heart, hear me, O Lord, I will keep your statutes. And it is through God's answer to Christ's prayer and Christ's own righteousness that we can pray with him. Taking his work as the power of our salvation Let's turn then to verses 153 to 156. Uh, 160, I'm sorry, 153 to 160. The main idea here is actually repeated three times. In verse 154, revive me according to your word. 156, Revive me according to your judgments. And in 159, revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. That's the main idea then of this stanza. And what we want to do is look first at the request, that request itself and the other uh, petitions that surround that request. And we want to look at the grounds upon which he makes that request. And finally, at the encouragement he gives himself in a couple of places in the stanza. 
He asks then that the Lord will give him life. As I've said before, that word revive is perhaps not quite as good a translation as we could hope for here. Give me life or make me live would be a better one. And the point that he's making is that his life is threatened. He talks in verse 157 about his enemies again. His enemies are threatening his life. And he doesn't mean simply that they are threatening his physical life, but he means that they are threatening his life with God. Through their oppression, through their temptations, through their persecution, they are uh, threatening to overwhelm him and to take him away from God's fellowship, from God's care, and from God's house, and to bring him down into the death in which they themselves are. So he asks then that God will deliver him from the death that threatens and give to him eternal spiritual life, that is, will bring him into his house, cause him to dwell with himself in that house, and to live with him in the holiness of that house. Notice, though, that this request, three times repeated here in the stanza, each time has with it a slightly different prepositional phrase. The first time, he says, according to your word, revive me according to your word. The second time, he says, according to your judgments. And the third time, in 159, according to your loving kindness. So he appeals to the word, to the uh, judgments, and to the loving-kindness of the Lord. Now that, that first word, which we find in verse 154, revive me according to your word, embraces the idea not just of the commandments, but of the promises of God. We've talked about this before, but it's worth repeating, I think. The idea of that word includes the promises, because the commandments themselves uh, uh, signified the promises to the people of God. When God gave them the commandments for the ceremonies of the law, the sacrifices and ceremonies of the law, he was signifying to them the way of salvation, the way of life. And he was signifying to them his promises and how he would bring them into his house. And so when the psalmist says, revive me according to your word, there is at least in part here a reference to the promises of God. He's saying, remember me and revive me according to the promises that you have revealed, signified, and spoken in your law. Be faithful to the promises you have made to me. In the second place, he says, revive me or quicken me according to your judgments. Your judgments have defined and described for me the way of life. Let those uh, judgments then so come to me that I may walk in that way of life which you have revealed in them. And then also revive me or quicken me according to your loving kindness, that is, according to that goodness which is inherent in your own nature. Those two phrases, according to your loving kindness, and according to your judgments are the same two phrases you find in verse 149 
in the previous stanza. Hear my voice according to your loving kindness. O Lord, revive me according to your judgments. So you have the same two phrases again, according to your loving kindness and according to your judgments. And these are the two things that are necessary for us, of course, as God deals with us and saves us. We need him to be kind to us because we don't deserve any of his goodness. We deserve death and destruction. And so we look for his mercy and his goodness and his kindness towards us. But we need also his righteousness so that our salvation may be founded on a strong and unchangeable foundation. Deal with me also, therefore, according to your righteousness. Mercy and righteousness kiss each other in the saving work of our God. Let's look then at the... um, other petitions surrounding these main, this main petition, three times repeated. And those petitions are found especially in the first two verses of the stanza. Consider my affliction and hear me. And then in verse 154, plead my cause and redeem me. The word consider we could translate very simply as see. He's saying to the Lord, Look at me. Look at the circumstances of affliction in which I am at present and deliver me from that affliction. And then in verse 154, plead my cause and redeem me. You need to say a little bit more about those two petitions. Plead my cause puts this whole conflict with his enemies into a context that is legal. A context of law. And what he's really saying by that phrase, plead my cause, is that both he and his enemies, as they are in conflict with each other, are walking in the presence, acting in the presence of God the judge. And there will be judgment of their activity. And he is presenting his cause then before the Lord as a righteous cause. And he is saying to the Lord, you are not only my judge, but I want you also to be my advocate, my defense lawyer. Plead my cause against my enemies. Take my side, is what he's saying to the Lord. Take my side against my enemies. Defend me from their attacks and from their accusations. We should call to mind here in in hearing those words of the psalmist, the uh, promise of the New Testament in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He who is our judge is also our advocate in the judgment. So that our cause is well defended. Plead my cause and redeem me. 
The word redeem there is the word from which uh, we uh, get the concept of the kinsman redeemer, the goel of the Old Testament, the, the man who would, for example, redeem his brother from slavery if his brother had to sell himself into slavery, or who would redeem his brother's land, his near relative's land, from uh, if his brother had been forced to sell that land in order to pay off debts or whatever the case might be. The sort of redeemer that we see in Boaz, as he redeemed the land of his relative for Naomi and for Ruth, whom he also took as his wife at that time. This redeeming work then is a redeeming work in which God comes to be, as it were, our kinsman redeemer, in which he comes to be one with his brethren and to lead them as the captain of their salvation to the uh, inheritance that he has promised to them. Plead my cause and redeem me because of my enemies. So these then are the means by which that quickening, that life that he seeks will be given to him. As the Lord considers his affliction and delivers him, as he pleads his cause, and as he redeems him, he will give to him the life that his enemies threaten. He will do it according to his word, according to his judgments, and according to his loving kindness. So let's look next, then, at the grounds on which this petition is made. And these are kind of scattered throughout the stanzas. So we want to look at a number of verses here. First of all, we want to look at verse 153, where he says, Consider my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. He pleads his righteousness. And he pleads his righteousness, of course, in the particular cause which he represents. He's not saying, the psalmist is not saying, I'm perfectly righteous. Only our Lord Jesus Christ could say that as he sang this psalm. But nevertheless, he is one who is part of the cause of righteousness in the world and who walks in the way of righteousness rather than in the way of death. So plead my cause or come to hear me and deliver me because I am of the party of the righteous. Then uh, the rest of the grounds are found in verses 156 really through 159. There's something we have to say about each one of those verses. First of all, in 156, notice he says, great or better many are your tender mercies, O Lord. And this, of course, takes us right back to that idea of revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. The mercies, the tender mercies of the Lord are very many. They multiply to us from day to day. There is for us in the work of the Lord's salvation grace upon grace upon grace, like the waves of the seas, sea coming onto the shore. Many are your tender mercies, O Lord. And on that basis, revive me, 
according to your judgments. But then notice the contrast with the next verse. Many, he says again, are my persecutors and my enemies. This is his need for that deliverance and salvation. His enemies are many. We should think here of Psalm 3, when David cries to the Lord against Absalom and those who had joined Absalom in his opposition to David. Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. And a little bit later, I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. One man against many thousands. That's what we see here. And those many thousands intent on destroying him. He has no resources in himself, no ability in himself to stand against them. Many enemies and many persecutors. Yet, he says, I do not turn from your testimonies. I continue to walk in those testimonies which you have revealed and given to me. Then in 158, I see the treacherous and am disgusted because they do not keep your word. He's talking about his enemies, of course. And he's talking again about how he's different from his enemies, how he represents the cause of righteousness, their ways, their thoughts are matters of disgust to him. They have no appeal to him. He has no love for their ways and does not want anything to do with those ways. He desires something entirely different. And then again in verse 159, consider or see again how I love your precepts. In the first verse of the stanza, see my affliction. Here in this verse, see how I love your precepts and then revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. So he appeals to his own righteousness again in here. Not because he expects God to acknowledge some kind of obligation to him as a result of that righteousness, but because he knows that he represents the cause of God in the world and against his enemies. Now there are a couple of lines in here also, I think, in which he encourages himself in his hope of the Lord's help. You find the first in verse 155, salvation is far from the wicked for they do not seek your statutes. So he he pleads with God in the first two verses to consider his affliction, to deliver him, to plead his cause, to redeem him. And then he says, salvation is far from the wicked. This is true of all of us by nature. But what he means here, of course, is that these wicked men, in their wickedness, are far from salvation. And as long as they do not seek the statutes of the Lord, they show that they are far from salvation. That's an important truth for us, isn't it? 
Those who are saved seek the statutes of the Lord. If they don't uh, seek the statutes of the Lord, that is simply evidence that they are not saved. These two go together. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. I show, he says, by implication, that salvation is not far from me, because I do seek your statutes. And then in verse 160, the entirety of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. There's a strong statement of the plenary, what we call the plenary or full inspiration of the scriptures. The entirety of your word is truth. There is not one part of it that is false. There's not one part of it that is the word of man. The whole of it is his word and the whole of it is truth. And every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. Not one jot or one tittle disappears from the law till all is fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ. So there is no failing of any of the judgments or any of the word, any part of the word of God. And that too is self-encouragement. He founds his hope on the, on the infallibility of the entire word of God. This is where I rest, he says, in that word, in the righteousness uh, that you have revealed in your judgments, in your work of salvation, as you have spoken of it, inerrantly and infallibly in your truth. This is then, people of God, Christ pleading his own righteousness before God. And we pleading on the basis of his righteousness as granted to us. May God bless his word for our good.